Good afternoon and welcome to the 137th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I speak with medical anthropologist, Danya Glabeau and interdisciplinary social scientist, Emily Rogers. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also catch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at USO Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. And I just wanna underline that in, in the last few weeks, I've been really gratified people have been reaching out and suggesting concepts for uh, whole episodes with guests and it's, it's just wonderful. So please keep those suggestions coming. As of today, September 29th, 2020, there are 1,003,337 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 7,156,562 cases of COVID-19 in the United States. That's up from 7,127,210 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 205,268 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States, up from 204,861 yesterday, crossing that threshold to a million deaths globally happened yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. Headline, a beloved teacher died from the virus. Now her school confronts reopening. This appeared in the New York Times today, September 29th by Eliza Shapiro. This week, Ms. Ali, the school principal of Brooklyn's Public School 9, hopes she can bring a sense of calm to another exceptionally difficult moment, the reopening of her school today, finding ways to make the building feel welcoming and safe for students who have been away for six months is as complex a challenge as Ms. Ali has faced in her career. Like military planners, she and her staff have scrawled arrows and stick figures in purple ink on a makeshift map to indicate where students will enter and exit the building. She has asked the school custodian to trace blue, yellow, and pink hearts on the pavement to indicate where students should stand so that even lining up can feel joyful. And she has inspected each classroom to make sure desks are six feet apart, but also that the walls are decorated and vibrant. One day we will look back at this as a moment in time, she says, repeating a mantra she shares with staff, the chaos and uncertainty are not forever. Roughly 1,700 other school principals across the city face a similarly formidable task as New York reopens its elementary schools Tuesday and the rest of its schools on Thursday. In their own ways, each is trying to address the pressing academic needs of young children, many of whom 
will have likely fallen behind in key subjects and who have not seen the inside of a school building since March 13th. But that work has been complicated by New York's halting efforts to restart schooling for its 1.1 million students. The most ambitious, consequential school reopening effort in America has been plagued by political opposition and major logistical hurdles since Mayor Bill de Blasio announced in July that schools would open on a part-time basis come September. At PS9, Ms. Ali must attend to the sadness and fear her school community is still experiencing after losing their treasured teacher, Sandra Santos Vizcano, the first New York City public school teacher to die of the virus. And she must do this in a city where people are still reeling from the events of the spring when many hundreds of New Yorkers were dying each day and where many parents remain nervous about returning to schools. That's why the trauma that has come with school reopening in New York City is doubly as real for us, she said. Nearly half of families across the city have opted their children out of in-person classes altogether through at least the end of November, a statistic that reflects both the pervasive fear felt by many city parents and skepticism of the city's reopening plan. That is well up from mid-August when about 30% of families opted for remote-only classes. Well over 200 of PS9's roughly 900 students have decided to learn remotely through at least November. Students entering Ashraf Muhammad's fifth grade classroom will be greeted by a poster of the Mona Lisa wearing a mask and with decals on the floor and signs on their desk reminding them to keep six feet of distance. Mr. Muhammad said he will hold a hand-washing drill with students on Tuesday and ask the class what they know about the coronavirus. Just a few weeks after the death of Ms. Santos Vizcano, Ms. Ali logged on to a Google Hangout session and watched as the faces of third grade students, some of whom were taught by Ms. Santos Vizcano, popped up on the screen. Today, the purpose is to learn from you and to share the tools we all can use to make us feel happy, Ms. Ali told the children on a cloudy morning in early May. She held up her own journal and encouraged the students to write down what they were experiencing. I feel scared was the first prompt. If I feel stressed, I just draw and everything goes away because I'm so into the picture, one girl said, her face pressed up close against the camera. Another said she had learned that if she had trouble sleeping, she should listen to recordings of rain falling. The sound, she said, reminded her that once upon a time, the coronavirus didn't exist. That session has become a template for how every day will start at PS9, either remotely or in person. During the first period, every teacher will ask their students how they're feeling that day and if there's anything they want to share. Children will also be asked to take short breaks throughout the day for movement and meditation. Ms. Ali has created a school recovery team to oversee students' mental health needs this year. Checking in with kids is my number one priority, Ms. Ali said. But there is so much more she has to do to keep her staff and students safe and to ensure children are learning. Ms. Ali has spent the last few weeks checking that all the windows in her aging building can open to allow fresh air to circulate. She has also organized staff members to greet students outside the building and at the door and to be floaters in the hallways to guide them. Recently, as she was describing the elaborate system she had created to help move students smoothly through her cavernous building, she paused. Mr. Mohammed, who worked closely with Ms. Santos Vizcano, said he is trying to channel her energy into the daunting school year ahead. Our goal is just to uphold her legacy, he said, to serve the students the same way she served her students for so many years.
Okay, let's turn to our discussion today. Really excited to bring on my guests and been looking forward to this conversation today. Danya Glabeau is an STS scholar and medical anthropologist and industry assistant professor and director of the Science and Technology Studies Program in the Department of Technology, Culture and Society at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. She has also been faculty at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research since 2015. She earned her PhD from the Department of Science and Technology Studies, referred to as STS, at Cornell University. Her research examines health activism, the political economy of biomedicine, and how human bodies become valuable data. Her first book in progress, titled Reproducing Safety, Food Allergy Advocacy and the Politics of Care with the University of Minnesota Press, examines the reproductive politics of food allergy advocacy in the United States. Her second book project, Cyborg, is with MIT Press. It's co-authored with Laura Forlano and will offer an introduction to feminist cyborg theory for scholarly, technical, and non-scholarly audiences. My second guest is Emily Lim Rogers. Emily is a PhD candidate in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at NYU. Her dissertation is an ethnographic and historical investigation of the politics of myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS for short, in the United States, particularly as it pertains to stratified healthcare infrastructures and gendered racialized histories of the laboring body. Emily and Danya, thank you so much for your time today and welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks, so Scott. So happy to be here. Let me start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. And Emily, may I start with you, please? Sure. Um, thank you for reading that um, story, Scott, because I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. Um, live in Fort Greene. Uh, been here since the start of the pandemic. Um, I was actually teaching in Lower Westchester. Uh, the very early days when that first, the first New York State cases were a mile away in New Rochelle. So been pretty close to the pandemic here in New York. What is, uh, can you give us the sort of streetscape right now? Is it feel in some ways normal? People are mostly wearing masks. What's the, what's the look of the street? I would say that it's very stratified in New York City. Um, I was going to say, actually, apologies if we hear sirens going by. And I mean, one thing we think about March is like you would only hear sirens going by. Everything else was eerily quiet. So to give a sort of like sense, I guess, of the streetscape, you can hear things other than sirens now, which is a very different situation than back in April. Um, yeah, most people wear masks around here. The COVID rates, we recently had that 3.25% positivity rate statistic in New York City where a handful of zip codes, nine zip codes account for 25% of the cases, but 7% of the city's population. So I would say here in Fort Greene, which is one of the most affluent areas of uh, Brooklyn, which is why I specify the neighborhood, right? Compared to areas like uh, Sunset Park recently had a cluster, um, poor um, areas with more black and brown people are um, certainly experiencing COVID in a different way. Um, I found mass compliance is really all over the place. It's pretty good here, but um, I think, I mean, tomorrow they will, starting literally tomorrow, New York City will allow indoor dining at reduced capacity, I think 
Um, so we'll see what happens. Uh, obviously, school reopening is another big variable. So I think we're sort of on a precipice right now. I think there's sort of this mood of awaiting a second wave and not quite knowing what to do in the meantime. Um, uh, it's an ambivalent state, but an ambivalent answer for an ambivalent uh, <laughs> state of affairs. So. Yeah, thank you for that description and and that article. Just hearing you talk, you know, it makes me think. I, I lived in Queens for a few years, and and one of the sounds that you grow quite used to is the is the sound of school getting out. Mm. And you can get already in a, a pretty noisy urban atmosphere, and all of a sudden, this burst of sound comes onto the street. Now, with two hundred out of nine hundred students returning, maybe it won't be quite that loud at PS nine, but. But I wonder how, you know, those sounds even just coming back in, are you describing the dining coming back in will change maybe in ways that are almost imperceptible how people feel about, about the city. Definitely. Danya, same question to you, where are you calling from and, and how's it looking there? Sure, so um, I typically live in New York City, but my partner and I have spent the last six weeks or so in a suburb of Chicago, um, staying with family. So I'm in my mother-in-law's basement here, <laughs> 35, not what I was expecting to be doing. Um, but um, so we've been out here for about six weeks. So we're gonna be heading back soon um, to get back to sort of life and, and family and, and more specifically for some medical care uh, that needs to get taken care of uh, with our New York doctors. So it's kind of ironic that um, we're going back for healthcare uh, just when the health situation in New York is, um, I think Emily is right from what I've been following it. It sounds like it, it is on a bit of a precipice or at least it might feel that way. Um, so, but, but it's, it's been really funny being out here. So it's a sort of nice white affluent suburb and we're in a development that's about 12 years old, um, you know, big, big houses, you know, all updated uh, perfectly in line with the HGTV standard. So very different from living in a pre-war building in New York. Um, and and the, the pandemic feels very different out here, um, which on the one hand has been relieving and on the other hand has been a bit surreal. So if you look at the, the town that we're in, it has about 50,000 people and they release COVID statistics daily. So I've been following those, comparing them to New York. And until the last few days, the rates per population of COVID was almost identical to New York City. Um, that only comes out to two or three cases a day because it's a much smaller place, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a surreal knowledge that the pandemic is just as bad here as New York when we left, and yet it feels much more kind of back to normal, right? So restaurants in Illinois are allowing indoor dining, um, you know, people around the neighborhood, it's much more spread out than New York. So you don't really see people wearing masks unless they're in a store in a, a closed in space um, and the mass compliance is very high, but it feels much more like back to normal. And, and it's very strange uh, to, to experience that out here. You know, the going from, so that's really interesting. You've seen sort of two different parts of the country here in this compressed period of time, culturally, is the pandemic perceived different? I realize you're not going door to door and asking people what they think of the pandemic, but can you get a sense of, of a sort of different culture, cultural um, understanding of the pandemic there in Chicagoland versus New York? 
Yeah, let me be really specific, right? We're we're North Shore, so these are very white, very affluent um, suburbs. So this is not what it would look like in the city. This is not what it would look like, um, uh, in, you know, in many other places in the region. But the the sort of feeling and and the conversations I've overheard and and been a part of with family uh, members and and kind of heard reported through them um, is that um, you know people really believe that uh, trusting their neighbors and family members to be good people uh, is going to keep the virus at bay, right? You know I trust so and so, therefore it's okay to spend time with them, and I know they would make the right decision. Um, so it's this really, um, to me, very obvious conflation of, of morality and risk, um, biological risk um, that's at play, um, which again, I, I think is very different from New York, right? I, and my sense was, at least in my neighborhood, before we left was that not everyone was necessarily compliant with masks, for example, um, but they were under no illusion that um, that, um, or, or they, you know, I, I don't think people had the sense that that would reflect on their morality or their worth as a person, right? In the same way that I, I sometimes hear it being talked about out here. So it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's very different. So we're going to turn to COVID-19 in a minute, but just as we work our way into that, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about your, your research. And so Emily, can I, can I start with you? Can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about your, your research project, the kinds of questions that you're asking, materials you're using? Totally. Um, so my dissertation is sort of loosely speaking around the politics of the incomplete medicalization of myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS. Um, it's a disease that emerged in formal uh, Center for Disease Control in the U.S. context taxonomy uh, over 30 years ago. It still has no agreed upon etiology. Uh, it has no FDA approved treatments, even in contrast to something like fibromyalgia. Um, it uh, is the, actually the least funded disease in terms of NIH funding per disease burden of any entity in the U.S. So my question actually is why, given this patient demographic, and I'm sure Danya and I will talk about this in a second, given this patient demographic of, you know, it was originally considered yuppie flu, right, very derogatorily, but given its association and the face of a lot of the patient um, advocates who are often very well educated, who are white, who are bourgeois, right, um, now they're mostly women, which is something we can definitely get to later, but given a, a relatively well-resourced patient movement, how is it the case that MECFS is, uh, has, has sort of been um, completely sidelined for the past 30 years, even given that there's been people pushing for the legitimation of this diagnosis for, for 30 years? So I guess the first way I understand that is, is through historical material, thinking um, about what um, Londa Scheibinger and Robert Proctor, the historians of science, call agnotology or the sort of creation of disinterest. So I'm looking at that through how this object chronic fatigue emerges, first um, through uh, industrial management literature actually, and then later I sort of trace its lineages all the way through to stress and burnout um, uh, to basically ask how chronic fatigue became a sort of naturalized phenomenon among a certain demographic of people. We even hear this when we talk about Zoom fatigue today, who are we talking about, right? We're not talking about essential workers. Um, and sort of the second, right, um, 
is also to understand how that sort of scientific uncertainty that is created, scientific uncertainty and disinterest, is lived by patient activists in the present. So I look specifically at a patient um, activist group that's sort of national and actually international in scope. But my field work for the past four years has primarily been based here in New York City. So I do think a lot about the sort of cultures of energy in New York City as well um, that um, you know may, may come up more. Um, yeah, and how these patient communities engage with biomedicine and with one another to sort of um, um, inhabit what happens when symptoms exist phenomenologically, but are not taken up into these regimes of bioverification bio that can sort of never be experienced mm -hmm. firsthand anyway. So that sort of difference in scale and how um, these scales interplay with one another from the level of the patient's exhausted body to the level of how those symptoms are diagnosed or, or whatever, to community making based around those symptoms to the level of what mitochondria causes what, right? Those are scales that are seem are not accessible at once yet are what I call repercussive. Um, and I'll talk a lot more about the shape of patient advocacy and how it also shapes um, and flex the whole, the whole thing. It must be uncanny for you to be studying this. You said four years of ethnography with this and then the, the pandemic breaks out and so much of the, um, described and explained patient experience of COVID-19, even in cases where it's sort of like not medically diagnosed, or people couldn't get a test or they had it. And then now maybe they have long haul um, sort of symptoms. It must be quite something to see that playing out while you've been studying chronic fatigue. Uh, yeah, it's been absolutely un uncanny is totally the right word. I. Um, at first, I thought, well, okay, you have the emergence of this new virus, you have the stratified healthcare system of the US that I've been always um, interested in, of course, and that dovetailed my project in certain ways. But then they sort of, and uh, you know, I've always been interested, I have a, a chapter of my dissertation is on the intertwining of um, then called chronic fatigue syndrome or even chronic Epstein-Barr with HIV AIDS. Um, but now, right, we have potentially a substantive intertwining, right? of these post-COVID symptoms mm. with ME-CFS. So there's actually the question is, are these are people with post-COVID syndromes are, as we speak, getting diagnosed with ME-CFS, are being in active dialogue with the ME-CFS patient organization that I've worked with for four years. I did not see that coming at all on the one hand. On the other hand, history repeats itself a little bit. When chronic fatigue syndrome first emerged in the late, in the mid 1980s, Epstein-Barr virus antibodies had just been discovered. We just developed, we had just developed the test to test for Epstein-Barr virus antibodies, which Epstein-Barr virus antibodies are something that 95% of people have by age five, right? But this was newly discovered, right? This was a newly, newly developed test. So part of what I'm thinking about with COVID is that when there is a discrete virus that these amorphous lingering chronic symptoms can be traced back to, People care, it's in the national spotlight. MECFS is beyond a shadow of a doubt within the national spotlight in a way that it has not since, I would say the late 1980s. So I, I've never seen more news coverage of it since, since in my archival research, I would say about 1990. Um, and um, part, of, part of what it show, goes to show, I think is the way that novel viruses or somehow newly, a new, a new technology to discover them, make people worry more about these people that they otherwise would would dismiss because they think, well, I can get it too. Yeah. 
I'm thinking as you're talking, well, this, there's another chapter or two for the dissertation, but th that would be horrible advice for anyone to give. And so I'm not even going to say it, even though I just said it, but don't do that. Um, thank you for that, for that um, explanation of the work. It sounds really fascinating. Danya, so just to bring you in, into the conversation, reproducing safety, food allergy advocacy, and the politics of care, done. Submitted to my editor for review. Okay. <laughs> there, there is a full a level of done. Uh, yes. <laughs> a level of done. Yeah, the first level. Take us done. inside the project. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Yeah. So um, this project was a uh, based on a two and a half year multi-sided um, ethnography. Um, with uh, looking at food allergy advocacy. Um, and so it kind of had a couple of stages. So I actually wasn't really sure that advocacy um, was the kind of interesting thing going on with food allergy when I started. And so I spent the first six months uh, doing ethnography in a couple of uh, medical clinics, um, kind of getting um, the learning about the science, starting to do some interviews with uh, people who are just newly being diagnosed with food allergies and other allergic illnesses, um, and also kind of sitting in on physician and resident training, which was kind of fascinating background to have um, when I then started um, connecting with people who ran uh, different local or regional food allergy advocacy groups, um, food allergy support groups, mostly for um, mostly for sort of white middle-class mothers, um, although not exclusively, and then starting to connect to some of the uh, larger national patient advocacy organizations, uh, attending a number of uh, conferences uh, and events. Um, and so, and, and then, um, yeah, so that was the kind of backbone of the project. And over time, one of the things that really started to stand out to me were um, this question of the politics of care that was going on around food allergy, right? Um, again, it was sort of notable um, from pretty early on that um, the folks who were at least sort of public facing and representing food allergy as an advocacy cause uh, were mostly women, mostly mothers. Um, many of them had a kind of professional background before having a child uh, or multiple children with food allergy and switching to being a part-time worker, stay-at-home mom, and getting engaged in food allergy advocacy. Um, and, and I saw, you know, not universally, but definitely a pattern of kind of accepting and naturalizing things like the idea of the mother as the kind of proper caretaker, right? As the person who is supposed to be advocating on behalf of children, the person who is supposed to be uh, sort of there at home taking care of kids. Again, this is not universal, um, but it was certainly uh, a strong pattern that I saw. Um, and so I started getting really interested in the question of, you know, well, how would that experience of um, being in this highly gendered role, um, being in this position where, you know, medical knowledge and magazines and keynote speakers and all these people were kind of suggesting over and over again that, you know, you are the person to be taken care of and to be advocating for your child. Um, how does that experience um, then inform the kind of advocacy that actually gets done? Um, so that's the question that I'm exploring in the book, or the, the main question that I'm exploring in the book. Um, and my argument there is that you know, there is this real centering of nuclear families and a real assumption of, um, 
naturalization of gender roles uh, as it relates to caretaking um, in advocacy, as well as in the lives of many of the people, uh, many of the women who are kind of front and center in these advocacy campaigns. And so the book talks about what are some of the implications of that? How does um, this kind of advocacy then get situated around certain questions with other questions or problems um, kind of not being addressed? Just to remind people, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking with Danya Glavo and Emily Lim Rogers. And we'll make the turn into to COVID-19 here. And just picking up with what you were just talking about, Danya, this, this term advocacy, the formation of community um, based upon the status of a person as being either a chronic sufferer or a survivor. That's been, people have been discussing this in the United States since March and in Italy and other places since January and February. I wonder, just pulling from your own work, if you can maybe generalize a little bit for us or help us understand a little bit what we should be looking for as we think about the experience of chronic disease sufferers, what we might expect to see with COVID-19. Yeah, well, one of the things that um, was always sort of interesting in my research and that kind of doesn't fit with the literature that I think might be interesting to, to think about um, is this sort of dividing line or this definitional question of whether or not um, what people are experiencing is a disability and whether or not there's a kind of genealogical and practical linkage to sort of radical disability movements, um, or whether what they're experiencing is a much more specific and situated kind of illness, and that their sort of kin and allies are therefore other people who are experiencing the same more specific kind of illness, right? And so I saw this in food allergy, and there were sometimes quite heated debates around, you know, how do you, um, for example, um, you know, what is the compatibility between seeking accommodations for a child who's allergic to peanuts versus a child who's maybe allergic to a less common allergen where peanuts is actually something they can eat when they can't eat many other things, right? So there were, there were these really sort of fine-grained frictions like this. But then there were also these questions that I encountered. Don't talk about this too much in the book, but also these questions of, well, you know, is there a is there a natural or easy alliance between people with celiac who are gluten free and people with food allergy, um, who have maybe several food allergies that may or may not be common, right? And how can those two communities work together, or are they somehow at odds, um, or are they, you know, maybe, um, you know, conflated in the public imagination, but people experiencing these conditions experience them very differently, right? So I think that's something that I'm, I'm kind of interested in. And, and Emily, maybe you've, um, you know, maybe you have a sense of this, but really interested in, um, first of all, how people in the sort of long COVID community are thinking about their positionality with respect to disability versus this particular um, condition. Um, 
And also, you know, how is that um, sort of mapping onto public conversations, right? You know, I, I think, um, yeah. So I don't know if you have a sense of that, Emily, but that's something I'm, I'm really kind of watching out for. Emily, let's bring you in on this, certainly to get this perspective of what you're seeing with chronic fatigue syndrome in this same, same sort of space. Yeah, I think I actually, um, I think that the relationship between chronic illness and disability um, or between sort of the medical and social models under uh, um, medical and social models of disability, I think are, have always been strained by chronic fatigue syndrome now, now known as ME-CFS. I mean, Susan Wendell, as early as the 90s, who herself has chronic fatigue syndrome wrote this piece, was writing pieces, uh, Unhealthily Disabled, that might be the later one, but about the sort of ten, tense relationship between chronic chronic illness and disability. And Alison Kafer, more recently in Feminist Queer Crip, I might be getting those words out of order, uh, wrote actually that um, exhaustion and pain strain these models of disability that can be accommodated, right? Strain these models of disability as you just need a sort of a social intervention and then you can participate equally in the world. As important as that is, right, part of what Kafer is saying is that they strain them. Um, I almost think that there's something really interesting going on when, on the one hand, people associate a politicized disability constituency, which Danya was referencing, as one that disinvests in medical models. People associate that, right? The medical model as pathologizing, the medical model as individuating, the medical model as locating it as something wrong with you. Of course it does all of those things. But then what happens when you have a community of people who are sick, but their experiences are not verified by biomedicine? They can have, and, and in fact, they are political, right? They are politicized. Some of them connect it more to, for instance, the struggle for Medicare for all, to, for instance, issues of medical racism, some of them less. But I think that um, I think that um, with the recent um, like the recent organizing we've been seeing, it actually sort of has done something interesting even to the MECFS community itself. I think because when you have an illness that's been so that's been particularly denigrated, right? There might be a tendency to understand. Um, I've called them balkanized before, these illness movements as, as rather balkanized because they're diagnosis based, right? Often, and it's about getting more resources for your disease, all of this stuff. However, we now have these people with post COVID syndromes and the, the chronic sequelae of COVID look very different for different people. Some of them, how, some of these symptoms, however, resemble chronic fatigue syndrome, ME exactly. Right. And they are meeting the criteria for it. Interestingly, you have to have under certain case definitions for MECFS, you have to have experienced the symptoms for six months. Guess what? At least six months. Guess what? Six months ago it was. It was March. You know, so now we're actually going to be seeing in the coming months more and more diagnoses of MECFS. But so. I think that there's something really frustrating. I, I think people, I think um, especially in American culture, we get very frustrated when an acute illness, something that's supposed to be an acute illness, like COVID, which is understood to be an acute infection that is either asymptomatic or it's mild or it's severe and potentially lethal. And we pay a lot of attention to death. We pay a lot of attention to those numbers. 
but we don't think about how even people with cases, relatively mild cases of COVID do not recover months later, right? And I think people get frustrated with that because we have all of these um, narratives about taking responsibility for one's health. We have narratives that if you get sick, it's mm -hmm. your own fault, right? And even people themselves, um, there was an article in the New York Times about people who are suffering through these post-COVID effects as blaming themselves for not recovering, as having done something wrong. And I, I think that's um, really uh, upsetting. And I think that, though I think, right, they're being dismissed by, and not, they're being dismissed by society at large and to some extent. And they're also to some extent getting dismissed by biomedical institutions because they were supposed to be better. Now, people with ME-CFS have been dismissed for a lot longer, especially people whose cause of ME-CFS is unclear. But for most of my interlocutors, at least, it was post-infectious, specifically after another coronavirus, like the flu, um, right? So another strain of coronavirus, right? So it's not surprising that we're seeing this. But um, so I think you can want to have greater recognition within biomedicine, yet also be political about things. I think that's what HIV AIDS um, uh, told us. It's about resources, it's about the infrastructures, right? Um, uh, but I think certainly there is this tension where certain people connect it better than others to these larger issues. But the solidarity between post-COVID folks, long haulers, what people call long COVID sometimes, mm -hmm. and the pre-existing MECFS community, I think has brought out the sort of collective attributes of this in a way that uh, had not been present in, in a while. The sort of solidarity between illness groups. Um. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And uh, Danya, the, Emily was Emily just was talking just about, talking about, about the, the way that the media might be starting to frame this. And I wonder if you're seeing uh, patterns in the way the media has framed, not just, I mean, there's been a lot of coverage, obviously, of acute uh, novel coronavirus infection and death. But I think just what Emily was saying, journalists are trying to figure out, I think, how to write stories about people who either never had the diagnosis confirmed because they got sick in April, then they got better, and now they're sick again. I mean, it's a very complicated set of longer term instantiations of COVID-19. What do you look for? What kind of patterns do you see in the media coverage? Yeah. Um, gosh. I mean, I, I think a, a pattern that um, that you often see in conversations about chronic illness, I guess less so in food allergy because you're often seeing children centered, um, but but certainly in relation to adults is um, a question I, I bet Emily has thought about as well, which is. Um, will they ever be able to work again, <laughs> right? Um, that, that, um, or, you know, I've seen many profiles of people sort of where the person or the journalist is pointing out that they were very physically active um, and accomplished at running or hiking or, or some other sport, right? And now they no longer are, right? So it's, it's, it's so interesting to me. And I'm, it's so interesting to me that uh, the way that we often sort of benchmark health by productivity, right, or by the ability to improve oneself through, you know, sort of physical prowess uh, and and exercise. Um, so that's that's something that you know I think many scholars have sort of critiqued and noted over the years, um, even many journalists. Um, but you know I see that sort of narrative strand um, coming out again. Um, but 
I also, you know, I, I also, well, let me leave it there for now. I'm curious if you have a follow-up question, Scott, or if Emily wants to jump in. Yeah, I, well, Emily, let me, I mean, there's just a, the observation you made there about these frames that seek to sort of find the tragedy in the longer term suffering. I mean, I think that's really, that's an interesting one. And I guess the other trend that I would have expected to see, and maybe I'm just not seeing it as, maybe others are seeing it more than me, is that it should come back to structural issues. Structural issues around access to care, about inequality, about the problem. I mean, it it's, lives next door to this frame that you were just talking about, that will this person ever be able to return to work? But the opposite framing of that is this person has never been allowed to leave work and has still been suffering under these conditions. And that's the sort of essential worker journalism that we've seen. Right, right, yeah, and and I think with this question of you know, will someone be able to return to work? Um, the way that we've set up our healthcare system, that's also a question of will uh, you know, will this person be able to have access to healthcare longer term, right? Um, because we have tied healthcare to employment and to family structures in a way that um, does not make it accessible to everyone in the United States, right? So I'm extremely concerned. Um, you know, even among sort of colleagues and friends um, who I know are experiencing this um, about, you know, what what will what will these people's life chances look like long term, right? And, and just imagining the trade offs that a chronic illness can uh, a chronic illness um, like you know post COVID or, or long COVID is going to mean in terms of just what people can do with their lives um, going forward. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think it really points out um, the crisis of the, of the healthcare system that we have and the real inadequacy of the very minor changes that have been made to it over the past decade. Emily, to this question about how the disease gets framed for those, you know, for the broader population, um, curious to bring it back to this question of activism, how empowered do sufferers feel? How empowered do these communities feel to, to participate in that framing? I'm sort of curious about how that part of activism works. I mean, sometimes we, when I think about activism around uh, disease, it starts exactly where you started earlier, like how much money is being spent on research, right? How many cases can we say are cured? Um, things that seem to be measurables, but there is also an important role, I think, for just explaining and having the media understand what the concerns of the community are. I'd like to know what you, you know, your experience again with him, with chronic fatigue is around that and what you might be seeing with COVID-19. Are the sufferers at all empowered in this moment? Well, I'm gonna say one thing about the demographics that Donya raised, and then actually it will, it will lead me to this question. And I think one question that emerged for me, Donya, when you were speaking is, how do you even be ill? What does it mean to have a chronic illness that is uh, difficult to acquire in some ways? With acute COVID infection, we know that uh, uh, it's disproportionately hitting black and brown communities and working class communities who are also disproportionately essential workers, right? But then we have this idea that MECFS is yuppie flu. That's the opposite demographic, right? That's literally the opposite demographic. COVID also acute COVID infections are, uh, or complications from COVID are more common in men. So we're, that's literally the opposite demographic in every regard, right? 
Um, but what does it mean to actually be able, given that we're seeing disadvantaged communities get affected by acute COVID infections, what will it mean if some of them turn into chronic cases? Who will be able to advocate for themselves enough, not only in terms of disease activism more broadly, but even within the setting of like a doctor's office? Or even frankly, to know, I've thought about this a lot in my, with my interlocutors of color, to think, you know what, I think I deserve better to then to feel like this. You know, they can't immediately find something wrong on my blood work. They're kind of dismissing my symptoms, but I think I deserve better. I'm going to go make another doctor's appointment. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Who actually even thinks that? They might just think I'm lazy. I'm a malingerer because that's what they've been told. You know what I'm saying? And who will believe that? And who will say, no, I won't believe that. And I think that's a very racialized uh, and class phenomenon. But in terms of this question of advocacy, Joe Dumet, along those, these lines, called the anthropologist Joseph Dumet, called um, uh, these contested illnesses, right, like MECFS or even like the sort of chronic COVID thing, illnesses you have to fight to get, which I think goes to sort of speaks to what I'm speaking to you about all of the sort of activism you have, advocacy you have to do either on be your own behalf or as part of these larger activist movements in order to even have the disease, right? In order for disease to be real real. If a tree falls in the, for in the forest, you know, that's the essential question. However, in my experience throughout my interviewees, uh, throughout my interviews, for my interlocutors, I'm wondering if these are illnesses that you have to fight to get, because that implies it's something that people are purposefully trying to do, right? But I think sometimes these are like illnesses that people only reluctantly accept that they have. Only through this process of just trying, I, I think at the end of the day, right, no one wants to have a contested illness that is not understood, that is dismissed by all sorts of people. No one wants that, is what I found, right? They want an explanation for their symptoms, but when those symptoms are not readily explained, it's an embarrassing and vulnerable thing. So that, just to your question about empowerment, I think it's an embarrassing and vulnerable thing. And I think there is a question about who is sort of the subject racialized gender class position right. subject that feels that they can actually go out there and and say that for themselves. I actually think part of the reason that um, that we see more women involved in advocacy is that men feel quite vulnerable. Like just to talk about masculinity for a second, I think men feel very embarrassed. Like I've, that my male interviewees certainly, you know, feel incompetent in their marriage. They feel like incompetent father, like all of this stuff. I think we do really need to think about that. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, a book came out called the lady's handbook for her mysterious illnesses. And I think it's an interesting book, but I think that the term lady is highly loaded here sure. because it implies, first of all, a, a woman, probably a straight woman, probably a white woman, probably a slightly upper class woman, right? Like, so who feels comfortable talking about it and being a patient advocate? I think has to do with people's previous political experience for sure, but it also has to do with patient positionalities, which is something I talk about in my own work. Yet these patient positionalities are lived in bodies that are exhausted. So it's not so easy to advocate for yourself when you're exhausted. So it's not even necessarily a question of how empowered you are, so, you know, you, or you want to be, it's, it's how empowered can you possibly be given all of these obstacles, including the limitations of, of your own body. I'm glad that you brought this, the, the gender dynamics of this into it. And it, it, it 
comes to a question I want to ask Danya about. Um, you have a piece that you wrote in which you talk about the concept of the hygienic sublime and as you're talking about allergy and the kind of gendered care dynamic that allergy care creates in the nuclear family, prescribing specific roles um, for who should be giving that care. And you were talking about this earlier when you were giving the overview of your of your book to us. And I, I wanna sort of bring that back on the table here because I think that must be probably relevant also to COVID-19. Who's supposed to be providing care in what kinds of settings? I'm curious what you're thinking may be if you're already seeing some patterns in the way that this is being being described. Yeah, so, um... Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of preface this by saying, you know, I don't, I'm not sort of actively doing research uh, with people who are, you know, who sure. are recovering from COVID or living with long haul COVID. Um, but, you know, I think there's been two things in the sort of public discourse and, and the sort of back channel conversations um, that have really caught my eye. One, I think, is um, something that Emily was just pointing to, right, which is, the fact that, um, you know, if we build on the MECFS template and the sort of stereotypes and, and history there, right, we, the sort of image of the sort of chronic fatigue or long haul COVID um, person might be a white woman, right? But we know that statistically that uh, COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting communities of color, against her frontline workers, um, so on and so forth, right? And so there's this like, real sort of uh, cruel and, and violent irony, right? That it is, um, you know, overwhelmingly or disproportionately at least care workers who are themselves becoming ill with this condition, right? Care workers of various sort, whether working in healthcare, uh, working in education, um, you know, I would certainly count, um, you know, you know, people who were showing up every day working at grocery stores to make sure people had enough to eat, right? I, I, I'm comfortable expanding the category of care worker to include those workers as well, right? Um, and so, you know, I think there's this, this sort of question in my mind, right? It's like, what happens when the care workers are disproportionately becoming disabled, right? Do we expect um, those folks to be, you know, getting back up and going back to work, um, which seems just unnecessarily violent and cruel, or is there, you know, going to be a real serious reconsideration of um, the sort of dignity of these people's lives and uh, careers um, and, you know, ramping up of the kind of social supports to make sure that, um, you know, those lives and careers truly can be, um, can be done with dignity. So that's one thing that I'm thinking about here. And the other thing that um, that I've been sort of thinking about, and, and you know, I think all of us have probably had lots of back channel conversations, private conversations about this as well, is the the question of like who is taking on the extra care work um, right. that the pandemic is bringing on to families, right? Who is um, the parent who's sitting next to a child while they're doing remote schooling, right? Who is um, the person in the family who's checking in on friends or family members with COVID, delivering groceries. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I think there's just incredible stress on parents of young children in particular, and especially working mothers, you know, many of whom are really not working and are full-time caretakers, um, despite a completely different plan for their lives. Um, so that's a, another place where you know, I think sort of structurally, we're really seeing 
um, or we're really seeing how fragile our structures, our infrastructures of care really are um, and how almost automatically those responsibilities uh, for care are, are going back to women or going back to low-income people or going back to people of color. Emily, just to get your reaction to that and, and, and also, I mean, something I have wanted to ask you about is, I mean, I'm learning so much in this conversation because it's not just the person who's suffering and who's sick, but there's the people, it, there's zones around it. There's zones of connectivity around it that extend maybe all the way out to a community of sufferers who find some way to move some political action forward. But then ultimately it's, it's even bigger than that. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious about, first of all, your reaction to kind of Danya's observations here about the structures, um, and what we may expect, who gets expected to provide care and who doesn't. But then also when it doesn't work right or when this, when it becomes stressful, I'm also worried about that. People who survive a while and then they're told you need to get back to work or um, you know, the stress in the system, which I guess we might even call PTSD, which opens up a whole other discussion about uh, diseases that get pushed to the margin. but. I guess I'm giving you more sort of themes on my mind than a concrete question here. I wonder if you find anything in there that that resonates for you. But I guess the core of it, I'm 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 worried about the damage that's done as this extends over time, in which our our networks of care are stressed beyond what they can bear. Well, first of all, yeah, I wanted to um, just make a, a brief observation. We Danya and I had talked about this before about what happens when the people who are naturalized caregivers are the ones that are, are ill? Because we've talked about the resonance between, some of the resonance between my project and Danya's, even though they're sort of inverse cases, right? Um, Danya, with your work, I also think about Raina Rapp and Faye Ginsburg's work on the parent activists of disabled children. That's different from a lot of my interlocutors are actually in like the, very much in the squeeze generation where they have like aging boomer parents in addition to their own, like that's the opposite of sort of the natural constituency who receives care versus the one who, who gives care. And what does that do to who advocates on their behalf? when the people who are naturalized caregivers need care, who advocates for them. Um, I would also say, I think that the infrastructures, I'm glad, I was glad that Danya also used the term infrastructures of care because that's what we called our panel, Laura Malden and Elena Feitz and I at, at 4S at the hmm. SPS conference back last month. Yeah. Um, that's better I than zones. That, that's infrastructure is better than that sort of zone metaphor I was using, I like that. Well, because it points to what you were saying, though, exactly, Scott, about it's not just the individual sufferer, it's the sufferer in what we call very nerdily a socio-technical terrain, yeah. right? Like it's how does suffering, how is suffering either exacerbated by that terrain? How is it even sometimes produced by that terrain, right? The lack of care for the cared for is part of, and the fact that we undervalue care labor is part of why those healthcare workers were exposed, right? Um, so it's also what I think about in terms of the repercussions, the repercussive um, nature between those, among those scales. Um, but I also wanted to say, I think that infrastructures of care have been broke. I don't think that they're not only now just strained. I think they've been strained and broken for a long time. I mean, like, um, <laughs> or just never built as in right. like child. Exactly. In the US, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm finished. 
And I think it's been brought into relief like nothing else now, but I think they've always been strained. Um, um, one of the things I think about is how I have an interlocutor, I have multiple interlocutors actually, who are married to people who don't even believe they're sick because they're too ill to work, yet their illness is delegitimized so they don't qualify for social security, but they need health insurance. Their husband doesn't even believe that they're sick and are frankly, not very nice to them, but they need to stay in that marriage so that they can have health insurance. I mean, to me, that shows how really, really broken our infrastructures of healthcare in the US have always been. Shows how Medicare for all is a feminist issue, all of this stuff. And then COVID is just magnifying, magnifying that. Um, but I still think, I, th I think that Yes, overall, the sort of denigration of care, care labor is, is shot, through, shot through the whole thing. Let me read something short here. Danya was kind enough to share some writing with us earlier in the week, and I'm just going to read a couple sentences from it. She said, writing, so she's coming to the end of her project, writing this conclusion against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic brings into relief how contingent and unnecessary the cruelty of privatized family-linked medical care is in the United States today. There have been moments in the pandemic when things became so bad that it seemed as though this system must change. I sat with that statement for a while because that's a statement that disaster researchers across many different domains of disaster research find themselves writing, thinking, saying. Um, I'm not going to ruin the rest of what that conclusion reveals, but I do think putting that on the table is, is crucial in this moment. I mean, we have literally seen within six months, nearly every inequality that can be exposed in American life redounding around illness and the health system. Is change gonna come out of this? Emily, let me ask you first, if you wanna to react to that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big question and I'm, I'm skeptical, <laughs> but um, I think Oh, these days I tend toward to be a little pessimistic um, about about the possibility for change right now, especially with the state of democracy right now. Um, so I feel like I'm going to have to just pass that question to yeah, Donna and see if you and, have any more and, thoughts on that. Well, and I um, asked it in such a broad way because certainly things are going to change. I guess my concern is that they don't change for the worse, that even more people right. aren't somehow cut out of the infrastructure um, the unfinished infrastructure as we were just describing it. Uh, Danya, what's, um, you don't have to give away your whole conclusion to your book, but. <laughs> well, I, I mean, well, first of all, I think it's, you know, I, I had a, as I was coming to the end of writing this and you were reading from the conclusion there um, and writing the conclusion in the beginning of May, um, you know, that was the first time I'd really thought about, um, you know, what, what does, 
What does food allergy look like? Um, what does chronic illness look like? If we think about it as a kind of disaster, right? So I was, it was really interesting to then hear you introduce our, our talk um, and, and just now again, sort of thinking about um, long haul uh, COVID, um, other forms of chronic illness that each of us studies um, like through or against or alongside this disaster frame, right? Um, and, you know, I, I think, like if we want to compare disasters and disasters, which is of course a kind of risky move, um, you know, the thing that keeps coming to my mind though um, is Hurricane Katrina, right? Um, and um, the fact that, right, there was this, this moment of crisis, right, that seemed to reveal so much that uh, inequality seemed to be um, absolutely undeniable and something had to be done. Um, and then just nothing was done. Right. And and I, I, I guess I kind of had a similar kind of vertigo over the past six months or so with, with COVID. Right. The end of March and early April, um, you know, I, I think there was, you know, a hope that maybe something would change. Right. I, you know, the, the sort of passage of the first um, congressional uh, relief bill and the, the stimulus payments. Um, it really, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the left was like, well, may, maybe we will get our universal basic income, right? Or certain parts of the left. Um, but obviously that fizzled over the summer. Um, uh, and then there was also this sort of moment of the sort of the protests um, at, the, at the end of May, which felt like maybe it was another sort of watershed moment or another turning point. Um, but, um, you know, that's certainly been sort of co-opted and it's now mainly just being used for, you know, fear mongering, um, people in white suburbs, right? I, I hear lots of Fox news, um, every day here now. Um, and, and so I, I'm unfortunately familiar with the, the discourse now of, you know, what the protests mean for a certain kind of affluent white voter as, um, sort of positioned by Fox news. And the like. Um, so it, it there were at least two moments when it felt like things maybe were going to change, right? First, the sort of healthcare and and social welfare system. Um, second, um, you know, it, at least starting to chip away at some of the institutionalized racism in policing and in healthcare. Um, but that has been sort of co both of those have been sort of co-opted into something completely different, into into different flavors of at the moment at least, um, you know, electoral theater. Um, and, and so that has gotten me really pessimistic, but if we were having this conversation three months ago, um, I might've still been optimistic. Um, so, so I don't, I don't, I don't know what it will take. Um, I, I hope things change. Um, you know, I, I think if, if nothing changes, at least with healthcare infrastructure, like setting aside everything else, nothing changes with healthcare infrastructure in another year. Um, there, there's just going to be a, an absolute crisis of, of um, homelessness and poverty that it's absolutely chilling for me to imagine at this point, um, as more people get sick and as more people lose their jobs and as more people are unemployed longer term. Um, but um, so far, you know, we've demonstrated in this country that a lot can happen and we still don't do anything. So yeah, I think that's, that's my pessimistic non-answer. No, I think that's, it's, 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 it's a lot to think with. And I think your analogy to Katrina is one that we should spend some time with um, because there's a devastating continuity in American life through disaster. And it's, you've sort of sketched 
this through. And sometimes I worry that the the May to August phase is that's a crucial one in the timing of disasters too. When people say, well, something's really got to give and then it doesn't. And that's a sort of a second kind of disaster. For some people, it's a real psychological impact. And for for some people, it, it means self-harm. Uh, and we've only recently, in the way we think about disasters, sort of opened up that possibility that a failed disaster response is, is a mental health disaster of its own in the aftermath. We're almost up on time. Danya, did you want to react to that? Or Oh, I was just going to agree with that. I mean, I think that is, you know, the, the sort of second health disaster, I think that we're seeing people talk about, right, is this mental health disaster, because of how badly the first few months of trying to respond went. Um, and, and that's absolutely a, another crisis and another, another thing that it's going to be with us really long term. Um, yeah. So as we come up on time here, and just to remind people, you've been listening to COVID calls, and I've been talking with Danya Glavo and Emily Lim Rogers, maybe we can end on a forward-looking, slightly different note. Um, and and that is this, this question that I have for both of you, because I'm seeing so much interest I, in my students, undergraduates, in across the board um, in social sciences, people who are gravitating to this topic or related topics. I'm curious what you see as the potential in this moment for the kind of work you do to itself be a form of, of activism, to itself be a form of connection. And, and I, I know some of those words can set off bells for people, you know, that we often try to keep a bright line between what happens in the academy and what happens um, in the street or in the halls of Congress. But at this moment, things seem to be converging quite a lot. So I guess I'm just sort of curious that we'll only be able to glance this. We can't get to the heart of it. But I am curious what you what you think about this more, what this moment may portend for the academy to become more engaged in suffering. In, in the concerns raised by COVID-19. Danya, let me ask this first, and then Emily, I'm gonna give you the, the last word on this. Well, I have to say, I don't have a particularly optimistic answer here. It's okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Um, so I, I have kind of a two-part answer. Um, the first part of my answer is um, that, um, you know, through my work at the Brooklyn Institute over the years, um, you know, I have been in conversation with so many community activists of, of different types, um, as well as workers in uh, fields like tech that STS scholars and anthropologists um, are really invested in trying to uh, trying to get to examine their own biases and try to get to do differently. Um, and for me, that's part of the reward of being at the Brooklyn Institute at a public facing institute like that. Um, but I am sort of under no illusion that sort of teaching and being in conversation with those people, um, you know, makes me an activist on the ground in a lot of those conversations. But I do think that the, I, I do think that there, um, it does seem like the conversation between scholars and on the ground activists is becoming more integrated and tighter in many ways, um, at least in terms of sort of shared languages and shared interests, if not through direct collaborations. 
um, and um, uh, especially around sort of racial and gender equity. Um, and so I'm really encouraged by that. So I will just like keep here sort of modestly doing my little piece of it. Um, and um, I will say to all of the people watching, I'm always happy to talk about what that looks like and, and how I've navigated those spaces myself. Um, I think a lot of scholars are interested in making those connections, being part of those conversations, don't always know how to start. So I'm always happy to, to be a resource. The other thing I will say though, and this is a more pessimistic thing, is that, um, well, SDS is not doing so great right now in terms of uh, infrastructural support for it as a field, <laughs> which um, scares me for the future of the field. Um, I think all three of us probably know of you know various departments that are being either threatened with downsizing or being actively downsized or having faculty harassed out and not rehired. Um, so just in terms of how many people are doing what we do um, in uh, departments like ours, that number is is sinking rapidly, um, and it, it does not seem like there's going to be an easy fix to that. Um, and sort of additionally, you know. I, I've, and those of you who follow me have been seeing me rant about this recently, right? But I mean, the NSF has basically kicked out <laughs> SDS scholars at this point, right? If the latest uh, Trump executive order ends up standing, right? Banning uh, research um, uh, basically on race, gender, uh, or uh, any other form of difference, right? Add that to the fact that the STS director was rewritten to emphasize only AI. Uh, for the coming couple of years, and that's that's pretty much the end of our field as a state-supported social science field. So I am very nervous, um, but again, I do think there are these other spaces, and I know many other people in conversations and, and building the infrastructure to create more spaces um, where social science can be done um, beyond the walls of the traditional university. There's a lot of logistical challenges there, but um, uh, but that is, I don't know what else. <laughs> I don't know what else we can do. Uh, at least those of us without tenure. Emily, let's. Uh, I'd like to get your your perspective on that. Thank you, Danya, for that. Yeah, I'm teaching a class on race, gender, and sexuality and global perspective right now, and I think in terms of the engagement with the academy's engagement with activists, projects, worlds, whatever. Part of me thinks it will happen because the students are extremely forcefully demanding it. And I think the problem comes, I mean, first of all, there's this problem of the future of the academy, which I feel like Danya addressed, right? Never let a good crisis go to waste. The, these will be, the, the COVID will be an excuse to cut departments like, like ours. The students though are demanding it rather forcefully. And I think that the question that they I really wish my students would grapple with more, but also that we need to grapple with more, is why are we in the classroom and not on the streets? And I think it's a good question to answer. And I don't mean that rhetorically whatsoever. I believe in the utility of the classroom um, to um, help us get through some of these really not easy questions. It's a space for us to have the time to think about it when you can't encapsulate it in a slogan. Yet, nevertheless, I think that the students are demanding that engagement, and I don't, I don't, um, I don't necessarily think that's a that's a a, a, a bad thing either. I think it's a, just one of many tough questions that we. Why are we? Right. Right. If, we I can, if I can just add an example to that, Emily, um, students are absolutely demanding it, um, and um, I know in my department in my program where 
constantly adding classes as fast as we can. Um, and But then the question is always the budget and the institutional support. Um, so yeah, I, I hope student demands are heard as much as they were heard uh, around reopening campuses. Why are we in the classroom and not in the streets? That, I mean, what a phenomenal question uh, to leave this with. I just wanna remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow, I'm gonna to be talking about COVID-19 in Bangladesh and issues of food insecurity with Hannah Rushek and Maheen Khan. And I wanna thank my guests today. We had a very stout list of questions to address and, and we really covered a lot of the themes that I was hoping we would. Thank you so much, Danya Glebo and Emily Lim Rogers for coming on COVID Calls today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Emily. Good to see nice you, Danya. See you again, Emily. <laughs> Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.